Tonight we are uh, on week three of week five of the Dumb Things Smart Christians Believe. I uh, appreciate you coming back. Uh, for those of you that are new, I'll give you a quick introduction to this series, and then we'll jump right in with Dumb Thing number four. Um, here's a quote from Larry Osborne, the gentleman who wrote this book. He said, Over the years, I've counseled and worked with many people who have made life-altering decisions based on what they perceive to be biblical principles, only to discover too late that what they thought was biblical didn't come from the Bible at all. Most of the time, they were victims of a spiritual urban legend. A spiritual urban legend is just like a secular urban legend. It's a belief, a story, an assumption, or a truism that gets passed around as fact. And admittedly, the consequences of some spiritual misconceptions aren't particularly devastating. But far too often, the consequences are spiritually devastating. Think of the disillusionment that sets in when someone writes off God for failing to keep a promise that he never made, or the despair that follows a step of faith that turns out to have been a leap onto thin ice. But whatever the case, I encourage you to examine each one with an open mind and an open Bible. So Daryl asked me to speak on a, a topic a few weeks ago, and I'm going to do this each week. I'm going to remind us and help remind myself, I do this for me many times as well, why I picked this material for this five weeks. So number one is to encourage us to look to Scripture to test all things. That's your first blank if you're a handout person. <clears throat> I'm going to mess with you handout folks tonight, okay? So if you're really obsessive about getting every blank, it's going to be tough tonight. It's just going to put the challenge out there for you. You really have to pay attention, okay? Number one, to test all things, and number two, to remove the disillusionment that comes when we, re when we rely on promises that God never made, that God never made. My son is in here with us tonight, and he is taking notes as well. So, Caleb, it's going to be tough tonight, okay? You have to pay attention. He's got a, I got the thumbs up, the Chuck Norris thumbs up, so we're good to go. All right, so the tentative schedule. Uh, two weeks ago, we did an introduction and looked at faith can fix anything, and we're just, as, we, as we knock these off, we're just going to cross them off the list. This is not true, this is not true, this is not true. Last week, we did forgiving means forgetting, and a godly home guarantees godly kids. So we debunked both of those last week. Tonight is God has a blueprint for my life, and Christians shouldn't judge. Um, and then week four is everything happens for a reason and let your conscience be your guide. That's my favorite one of the ten, by the way, the Jiminy Cricket. Um, I just hear this so often. Well, it feels right. It's fingernails on a chalkboard. Uh, week five is God brings good luck. Uh, we'll look at prosperity theology in that space. Uh, valley means a wrong turn. Uh, and then dead people go to a better place. So that's where we're headed. Tonight, dumb thing number four, God has a blueprint for my life. I'm going to read you a quote from Larry Osborne here. He says, Have you ever noticed that when it comes time to make a major decision, most of, experience, most of us experience a heightened interest in discovering God's will? Not that we don't care the rest of the time. Some of us look for signs, divine coincidences, and open doors that supposedly indicate God's leading. Others look deep within, seeking a supernatural insight or a sense of inner peace to show the way. And some of us major on fact-finding and wise counsel, or at least the advice of a few friends. And almost all of us pray a little more, Lord, show me your will, please. So, I brought something with me tonight. Who can tell me what this is? So, Easter at Coolidge is actually an event. This is a t-shirt. Yeah, it's okay. Um, I'll speak slower if you need me to. No, okay. So this is my Easter at Coolidge t-shirt, right? It says, ask me. And this is synonymous with 100,000 what? Eggs. And what do Easter eggs look like? They're plastic. Praise Jesus, right? Because if we did real ones, can you imagine 
the city would never let us do anything in that space. Ever. You may not ever be able to do anything in that space ever again. It would be awful, right? They're plastic. What shape are they? Egg-shaped. Thank you very much. for. So I asked for that one. I did, right? I asked a... Thank you. Yes, there you go. I'm going <sighs> to... That was awesome. Good job. All right. Mad props to Billy. Okay, so they're egg-shaped, right? They are not uh, three feet by three feet and uh, painted in uh, murals of Bible stories, right? You're going, no, that's not what an Easter egg looks like at all. And yet some of us think that finding God's will is like an Easter egg hunt because We're looking for great big things that have a picture of exactly what I'm supposed to do when what we really should be looking for are something completely different. Has anybody ever experienced this? You've asked God, show me your will. Just show me what you want me to do in this space, and I would love to do it. Um, I was torn when I was a uh, sophomore in college, and I had come to the point in my life where I was ready to pray the prayer, and I did, God, I don't care what it is you want me to do. I just want you to tell me. Now, that's a dangerous spot, okay? Because he can fill in that blank with anything. Um, We learned in Sunday school this morning, we've been looking at Bible characters you've probably never heard of, the story of Rhoda. And there was a prayer meeting going on, right? And they were praying for Peter's release from prison, and Peter is miraculously released from prison. Their prayer is answered. And what happens is only one person really had the wherewithal to pay attention and go answer the door, right? And she answers the door, and there's Peter, and she runs back to tell the folks that are praying, he's here, guys, you can stop praying now. God's answered this prayer, right? And, and what did they do? They kept doing the spiritual thing, and then they called her crazy, and, and it took some time for Rhoda to get some traction with her message that, Peter is here. God's answered this prayer. And many times, God has already answered the prayer of show me your will when we keep asking this question. Okay? So I want to walk us through a little bit of this tonight. Um, So Osborne talks about this idea of a detailed blueprint for our life and how it's a myth. Uh, And it confuses, this is a quote from him, it confuses God's omniscience with his divine will. No question, God knows everything, down to the numbers of, number of hairs on our head. But that doesn't mean he has a plan for how many we have or that we're in rebellion if we try to replace some of the ones that go missing. Right? Um, the fact is, God doesn't have a blueprint for our life, never has, never will. He does, however, have a game plan for our life, and the difference is important. So, next blank, blueprints must be followed. How many of you have ever followed blueprints? When did you follow a blueprint? Juliet, you followed blueprints, right? You followed blueprints to do what? Install, design kitchens. Is it important that whoever is actually following the blueprints really do that piece well? Yes, because we would like when the water runs into the sink for the water to run to where it needs to go, right? Um, If you're designing a house, you don't need a door where a window should go. You'd like for the toilet to work appropriately, right? Blueprints are important. They are extremely scripted. You don't mess with blueprints. You follow them. And the metaphors that we use in life to describe how things work in a spiritual space are 
important. One of the reasons Jesus' teachings are still popular and relevant and easy to understand 2,000 years later is that he used very simple things to describe very complex relationships, right? I'm the bread. I'm the way, the truth, the life. I'm the door. These statements, the things that all of us can recognize and relate to very, very easily. So, Some of you may be saying, well, Jim, this doesn't sound like it's important. Well, let me give you some names of some folks who have preached sermons or written books with the title, God Has a Blueprint for Your Life. Ravi Zacharias. Andy Stanley. Now I've made you nervous, hadn't I? Because I love both of those guys. They are rich, intelligent, deep thinkers who understand broad brushstrokes of the plan of redemption and what God is doing and has done and plans to do in the universe. And yet we can get caught up in using a really bad metaphor that sends the wrong signal. So what's a better metaphor? Well, I'm glad you asked. Thank you for asking that question. A better metaphor is a game plan, okay? Here's what Osborne says about a game plan. A game plan is very different. Rather than spelling out everything in detail, it sets forth general guidelines and principles, here's your blank, with lots of freedom and flexibility for adjustments as the game unfolds. Did anybody watch uh, Florida and Tennessee try to play football yesterday? Anybody watch that? That that was just bad, right? I mean, I'm a Vanderbilt fan, and you can make all kinds of jokes about that, but that game yesterday was awful, right? And coaches spend a tremendous amount of time with their players going over game plans, right? And they'll run a play. And the quarterback tells the rest of the team, this is what we're going to be doing. And for any given play, what you want are several options. Would we agree? We don't want all of our eggs to be in one basket because if all of our eggs are in one basket and that basket all of a sudden has a hole in it that's represented by a 320-pound linebacker, this is a problem. We need other ways to get around. And that's what the Bible does for us. It gives us a game plan. There's freedom and flexibility. And some of us may go, well, I really want a blueprint. I want God to tell me every single step that I need to take. You really don't. You really don't. Do we rely on him? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Osborne says, this isn't to say that God never has a specific and highly detailed plan in mind. Sometimes he does. I mean, he told Hosea to marry Gomer. That was specific. He told Moses and the children of Israel exactly where to camp and when to move during their wanderings in the wilderness. But these kinds of explicit instructions are exceptions, not the norm, in the events of our Bible, even in the lives of our biblical heroes. The fact is, we have much greater freedom than any blueprint would allow. That's the main reason the details of God's will sometimes seem hard to find. They often aren't there. We're asking God which one, and he's saying, I don't care, it's up to you. So, Joel, you're holding something in your hand. What are you holding in your hand? Coffee. coffee. What kind of coffee? French vanilla, French vanilla stuff. Do you think God is more pleased, less pleased, or about the same pleased if you'd chosen regular coffee or French vanilla? I don't think he cares either. As long as it's not decaf, right? Because he would like you to pay attention tonight, right? Yes. Do um, you see where we're coming here, guys? A blueprint is every step. A blueprint is every item. A, blue, a game plan is, how many cups of coffee do you drink a day, Joel? 
How many pots? Wow. Okay. How many pots? One and a half pots a day. Okay. So maybe there's some scriptures that deal with that type of consumption, right? <laughs> maybe, but coffee wasn't around. So there's a, there's a, is there a blueprint or a game plan for how we approach things that we put in our bodies? There's a game plan, right? There's principles that we apply today. Um, the rest of Osborne's quote here, in the vast majority of situations and decisions, we have great latitude. God doesn't care, here's your blanks, where we work so much as how we work. Doesn't care where we live so much as how we live, and even whom we marry, as long as it's within the faith, so much as how we do marriage. Does this make sense? Yeah, okay. So what are some of the downsides the downsides of living life, believing the mindset that God has a blueprint for exactly how I'm supposed to live my life. Well, a couple here. Uh, one is you can be paralyzed by fear. And, and this is me, quite honestly. I'm a beaver. Uh, you know, Gary's four animals. Uh, I'm a data-intensive, loving as much information as I can get before I have to make a decision. Yeah, because I want to make the right decision. And many times what I will do in my life is I will hog data and information until it is just consuming me, and then I'm not smart enough to figure it out. And most of the time, I'm not smart enough to figure it out because it really doesn't matter. It can go either way. I'll give you an example. I manage a group of uh, 27 project managers at TVA in our information technology division. These guys and gals run technology projects. That's what they do. It could be anything from installing new servers to putting in a umpteen million dollar new human resources system. Lots of different things that they're doing. Our leadership in my organization came to me two and a half weeks ago and said, Jim, we'd like you to hear the details of something we'd like you to have as your next assignment. I said, sure, let's listen. So I went in and they painted a picture of what they'd like my next job at TVA to be. And I asked questions, and they said, are you ready to make a decision? And I said, no, I'm a beaver. <laughs> I want to talk to a couple people. And they said, when will you be able to make your decision? And I stretched myself a little because I knew I'd have to teach this lesson in a few weeks. And I said, today. Really, today, yes. I need to talk to three people. And when I talk to those three people, I'm good to go. Okay, great. Went to talk to person number one. Wave at me, person number one. It's my wife. Jules, here's what they're describing. Here's what it looks like. Here's what we think it'll be. See any problems with that? No. Have you talked to so-and-so about it? Nope. I now have four people to talk to. Okay. Went and talked to person number two. Sounds like a good opportunity. Went and talked to person number three. You need to think about this and this and this. Great feedback. I appreciate that. Went and talked to person number four. You're an idiot if you don't say yes. Okay. Called up my boss. Said, hey, I'd like to say yes. Sounds good. Great. That'll work. Now, do you think God cares which one I picked? Now, it's a trick question. Okay. So, does God care about us as people? Absolutely. Does God love us? Absolutely. Is he fretting over whether or not 
I will derail his cosmic plans for the universe if I step outside the blueprint that he has for my life. No, not at all. He knows what I'm going to do. I'm okay with him knowing what I'm going to do. He's infinitely smarter than I am in this space and in all spaces, right? So, Osborne says, in the mistaken belief... Oh, and the job's going well, by the way. Thank you for asking. Appreciate that. Osborne says, in the mistaken belief that there's only one right choice for every major area of life, a blueprint mentality paralyzes decision-making. And as a result, we can end up hesitating, overthinking, and rejecting lots of good and acceptable options. Anybody ever done this? You waited so long to make a decision that slipped right through my fingers. Yeah. Okay. If the scriptures tell us what to do, then by all means, let's do it, and let's do it right now. Amen? The scripture's clear on this issue. Do this. I mean, this is what it is. But if not, let's make the best choice we can and move on. And even if we do make a mistake, there's a, make a mistake, there's always a path of obedience in every situation. Even on the back end of some really stupid decisions, I know because I've been there. Okay? So, a couple of the things. You can also have a skewed focus. Osborne's next quote. Here's your next blank. It's obviously unfair to paint with such a broad brush as to imply that everyone who sees God's will as a detailed blueprint ignores God's day-to-day commands. That's not what I'm saying. That's clearly not the case. Here's your blank. But a blueprint mindset does tend to turn our focus more towards finding rather than becoming. What's God's goal for me? That I look like Jesus, right? Can I look like Jesus if I'm overseeing a particular project that my leadership asked me to do? Or can I look like Jesus if I'm managing 27 project managers? Which one? Yes, right? The beautiful thing about Christianity is it works everywhere. It works at all times in all places. It's flexible enough to work. And I don't know how God did this. I, I can't imagine designing a system that will work in any scenario, no matter what the world throws at it. Can you imagine this? I, I have trouble putting oil in my truck. I can't imagine designing something that complicated. This is just, this is, it boggles my mind, but this is the God that we serve, and it is beautiful. Now, typically speaking, in my Sunday school classes, I have homework. So you've got homework. At the bottom of this page are several verses. These are the verses that talk about the will of God is this, right? Does anybody know some of these? Anybody know what the will of God is? Because there's quite a few of these. Yeah, I've just listed some of them. Good. I'm glad you didn't speak out because the answers are here. Okay, this is your homework. Look these verses up. This takes a lot of stress off of life. Some of you are looking at me like, that's a lot of verses to look up. Yes, there's websites where you type them in and you click a button and they'll all pop up at once. It's okay, you can cheat like that. So obey what we know. Osborne ends this chapter and says, God indeed does have a plan for all of us, but it's a game plan with lots of freedom, not a blueprint with every detail spelled out. Our job is not so much to find something, it's to become someone. A reflection of his image and character no matter where we find ourselves. So, that is dumb thing number four. God has a blueprint for my life. Dumb thing number five. Christians shouldn't judge. 
Oh, here we go. This is a fun one. Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 7 if you've got your Bibles. We're going to park here for a little bit. Now, I have a rule in my ACT class that I teach that if I see a yawn, everybody stands. I've seen two. I'm watching. Matthew chapter 7. I'm going to read you a quote by Osborne while you're finding Matthew 7. I have a surefire way to get your non-Christian friends and co-workers to quote the Bible. It works every time. Use the S word. You know what the S word is, don't you? Sin. It's dirty. It's awful. It's the worst thing on the planet. It's sin. Call something a sin. Speak out against the lifestyle that the Bible forbids. Critique the belief system of a cult or world religion. Or criticize any behavior that isn't universally condemned by our culture. Then step back and wait. And it won't be long until someone who otherwise doesn't have much use for the Bible quotes from Matthew 7, 1. What does it say? Judge not. Ironically, the person who speaks up will probably have no idea where to find the quoted verse and no idea that it's quoted out of context. Has anybody ever had Matthew 7, 1 quoted at them? Judge not. Anybody had it today? I mean, it happens a lot, right? This is... It was in the paper yesterday? Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about that. In your Bibles, take a look at Matthew 7, 1. What happens immediately after the not? What's immediately after the not? I heard it over here somewhere. There's a comma. That's not a period. And it's not an exclamation point. A comma means there's more to this thought. Does this make sense? Jesus is going to go and explain what happens next. Using judge not on its own is called proof texting. It's belief, uh, be basing a belief on a specific verse or a specific part of a verse and building a theology or a doctrine just on that. This is a much, much broader concept in the Bible. In Matthew 7, in the passage, read in context, is not a pro prohibition against judging. It's a stern warning against judging improperly. In fact, immediately after saying, judge not, Jesus goes on to tell us not to give our sacred things to dogs or to cast out pearls before swine. That's hard to do without making a few judgments, especially figuring out who's a dog and who's a swine. Right? Okay. You say, well, what about tolerance? Don't you just love tolerance? Tolerance used to mean something else in this country. It really did. Tolerance used to be that uh, allowing someone else to be wrong or to believe something. Tolerance now says uh, everyone is right no matter what they believe or what they do. And that is not true, guys. That is just not true. The reality is, here's your next blank, that there is such a thing as spiritual truth. There is. There are things that are true. There are things that are not true. While many disagree, here's an example that Osborne uses to show the folly of a different view. Imagine an engineering student arguing with his professor that his calculations don't matter as long as they work for him. You want to drive over that bridge? I don't think so. Imagine your doctor handing you a group of pills you take which ones you feel are right for you. 
See, we, we absolutely, completely and totally believe in absolute truth in the vast majority of our lives. We do. We believe that that piece of material that we strap across our chest when we get into a vehicle is actually going to save us if we're in an accident. That seatbelt is important. We believe there's truth that it's going to hold us in a certain position. We believe that airbag is going to deploy. We believe that when problems come in life, this stuff that we've called insurance is going to help us out and bridge the gap through difficult times, right? There are absolute truths, truths that we rely on. But when it comes to religion, well, if that works for you, that's okay. No, it's not. There is truth. There is truth. There is truth. Now we're getting there. It is critical that the world knows that we know it, that we live it, and that we share it. So why should we need to judge? If we live in a world with no judging, here's your next blank, we would never evaluate reality against the truth of the Scriptures. This is what we are called to do constantly as believers. We are called to walk into a space and allow the Holy Spirit to lead us through what we have learned in the Scripture, what we have been taught, to act in a way that reflects the character and the nature of our God in that space. Right? We're supposed to live a certain way no matter where we are because there is a thing called truth and it impacts how I live. If there's, a, if there's no such thing as truth, I've said this before in my Sunday school class, it's been several years, if there's no such thing as truth, what are we bothering with all this for? I mean, this, let's go home. There's football on, right? Let's go do something that pleases the flesh whenever the flesh wants to have it. Because if there's no such thing as truth, then I can't rely on God. This is a huge, huge issue, the truth issue. So how do we do this judging thing if we're supposed to judge? Well, let's look at Matthew 7. There's a couple hurdles that we need to clear, and they can be very high hurdles. The first is Matthew 7, verse 2. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you used, it will be measured back to you. Ooh. Well, that's a high hurdle, right? So do we do this brashly and quickly without thought or compassion? Mm, no. I'd like a judge with patience and love and grace, right? So let's be careful how we walk into this space. Second thing is deal with our own stuff first. Look at Matthew 7, verses 3 through 5. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? So let's just illustrate this for a second. Can I get two volunteers? I need two brothers. I'm just going to stand up here in the front. Anybody? All right. Thank you, Sean. Oh, I've got four. That'd be even better. All four of you, come on up. That'll work. So this is the speck in the log. Roger, you're going to have the log in your eye. This is the log that's in your eye. So it just needs to hold it up. So this, this looks awkward, right? Everybody, everybody say this. You see this looks awkward? Yeah. And these guys are pointing. You're pointing. You've got to point, right? Because he's got this log in his eye. And it's obvious, right? And, and, and we've all been here. Where Roger, it's, it's heavy, isn't it? 
It's actually heavy carrying a log around sometimes. Yeah, sin's like that, guys. Um, We've all been here where we've got this log in our eye, and we may or may not know it, right? Uh, Please tell me you've been here. Does this make sense? Okay. And we've all been over here. Come on, guys. You've got one job. Seriously, there you go. You can't get good help here. Um, And we've all been over here with... You know, so your left hand needs to be up on your, on your left eye. Just kind of scratching a little there. There you go. I got a little something in here. I got a little something in here. But good gracious, I mean, come on. Really? This is ridiculous. This is absolutely ridiculous. And what does the Bible say? The Bible says, go rinse this stuff out of your eye. Go deal with my house before I go jump on my brother. Now, what's the point this is, this is a tough one to get. What's the point of cleaning out our eye? And, say that louder, Joel. So we can help our brother. So we can help our brother. I love my brothers. And I love them so much, I don't want him to walk around with a stool sticking out of his eye. <laughs> We're in this thing together, right, Roger? Are we doing this thing together? We are. We are. He needs some help, guys. Rinse your eyes out real quick. Get it out? Okay, come on. Help him out. Come on. He's, he's tired. He's tired. Now, there you go. And guess what? Where are they now? Together. They're together. You cannot, you cannot do this without fellowship. This activity brings brothers together. Don't miss this, guys. This is important. Now, was it painful pulling that log out of your eye? Absolutely. That was, yeah, he didn't know how to respond there. He was setting him up. And the speck, what about the speck? He's like, ah, yeah, we had to deal with that, right? Yeah. But now you've been through something together, right? Now we have a battle scar. Now we can go do something bigger. Now we can see that Billy, his eyes are clear. That's cool. Good job. All right. But, brother, <laughs> I try not to hold grudges, brother. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Appreciate your help. Okay. Um, so your next blank here, one goal of our judgment should always be restoration, right? It's going to be sad one day, and God will wipe away these tears. So don't, don't mistake what I'm saying. But it's going to be sad one day when I get to heaven and I'm confronted with the sin that I had in my heart toward another brother that had a speck or a log in his eye. And I didn't care enough about him to reach out and engage in his life and help. This is about restoration. We're going to do this thing called life together forever. I can't wait, John. Can you imagine philosophizing with Moses and David about the things that they saw and did in the Old Testament. How cool is that going to be, right? To be able to wake up one morning, Diane, and to go, I'm going to go see Jesus today. This is incredible. We get to do this forever. The payoff for the Christian is unbelievable, guys. And we have got to be about restoration. What's the great story of the Bible? It's the redemption of mankind, right? The beautiful display of God's love and how it arcs across all time and results in Him bringing us to Him. 
It's beautiful. It's about restoration. We fumbled the ball, much like Tennessee and Florida did yesterday, over and over and over again in the garden. And what does Jesus do? He fixes it, right? And he, he somehow puts the Holy Spirit in us so we don't get to fumble that particular ball again. And he's, he's, he's with us forever. It's beautiful. This is a wonderful thing, and this is about restoration. So what happens when God hasn't spoken clearly in a space? Typically, what we do is we judge even quicker, right? You've seen this? you experienced this? Here's a scenario that I use, an illustration that I use in my Sunday school class. Some, some, Sean could probably do this at this point, right? You, you closed hand, closed fist, open hand. There are things that we believe that are in a closed fist. There's five of them here at this church. Anybody tell me what they are? Authority of Scripture, bodily resurrection, coming of Christ, deity of Christ, and exchange of Christ. These things we hold, hold with a strong, firm grip. We do not loosen our grip on these five. We will fight for these five. We will die for these five. Okay? This is a big deal. These are what we are about here at Stewart Heights. There are other things that good Bible-believing Christians can disagree on. Can somebody name one for me? Just, this is extremely dangerous for me as a speaker for you to speak into this space, but we're going to try. Multicamp. That's a really relevant one for our scenario, isn't it? Some of you will remember that when we were one campus, bursting at the seams, doing 416 services a day uh, on a Sunday morning, absolutely killing our AV staff. Thank you, guys. Um, it was it was really truly awful. How many of you were there when we just were doing the one camp? We were just at the Chattanooga campus back when it was the main campus. Okay, still is the main campus. That's right. We shall not be moved, right, brother? That's right. That, <laughs> that's awesome. I love Billy. It, it it literally it makes me happy when I know that you're in the room when I get to speak because you're engaged and you lean in and I love it and I, I appreciate that, brother. So thank you. Um, there are things that are in an open hand. We had, past tense, quite a few brothers and sisters that were walking with us, doing life together, believing these five things that decided to break fellowship with us when we came to this campus. And it broke my heart. Because I thought we were about these five things. And what I quickly found was that Lots of people put other things into this fist, right? There are open-handed issues, guys. Whether or not multi-site church is a good way to do church is an open-handed issue. There will be brothers and sisters that say, you are pagans. Well, maybe not pagans. They're probably not brothers and sisters if they're calling us pagans. You are wrong, and I don't want to participate. Okay. Jesus is awesome. Right? Let's rally around these. We get hung up on this way too often. Way too often. Some of you probably grew up in churches that had lists. Sometimes these were published, sometimes they weren't. 
These are the things that you could do, the things you couldn't do, the things that, the places that you could go, the places that you couldn't go. Some of us went to school with lists and had to read handbooks with lists. Um, and here's the reality. Osborne's got a great quote. I learned long ago that anything left out of the Bible was not left out by mistake. The beautiful thing is, we've got what we need. We do. If we believe that the Holy Spirit inspired men to write the Scriptures, we've got what we need. There's truth behind that. And it's sufficient. It's what we need. There are so many parts of Scripture that I would love to know just a little more detail about, to have that story fleshed out just a little bit more, to know what the expression on this guy's face was when this person said this, and to know how the rest of that conversation went. What happened the next day? I mean, wouldn't that be interesting to know and how wonderful that would be? And none of that matters because we've got what we're supposed to have. And we shouldn't be arguing and judging over the stuff that we don't have. We shouldn't be arguing and judging over the stuff that we don't have. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. All right. So, my next question, is there a difference in how we engage in judging Christians versus non-Christians? And the answer is yes. If you want to put a capital, I should have had a capital Y, a capital E, and a capital S on the PowerPoint here, but I forgot. Here's what Osborne says about this. Flipping your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 5. You listen while I... Read this quote, 1 Corinthians 5. Even if we successfully convince non-Christians to live by Christian standards or successfully legislate it, without bringing people into relationship with Christ, all we've done is populate hell with nicer and more moral people. Now, 98% of the time in this book, Osborne is, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. I want you to understand that what you believe is stupid. He's got his arm around the reader the entire time, walking them through. And then he throws down this. All we've done is populate hell with nicer and more moral people. More important, here's your blank, the Bible specifically forbids us to judge non-Christians by Christian standards. You say, well, that doesn't sound fair. Well, it didn't really matter. It's in the Bible. It is what it is. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 13. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Does this seem relatively obvious to us? Oh, we need to have a lesson on this. Does this seem relatively obvious to us? Okay. Verse 10. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, or a viler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Here it is. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside, outside the family, outside the faith, outside of Jesus and his redemptive work on the cross? This is those that have not been saved. Do you not judge those who are inside? Like, duh, that's who we judge, guys. We judge those on the inside. But those who are outside, God judges. 
that's where the, oh, that's the line that we don't cross, right? And, and please understand, there are very crystal clear lines in Scripture that we are not to cross. There are places that we can get and say, there is freedom in this space, but there is not freedom in judging non-believers. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. So, what's the goal of judging then? If we're to do this, what's the goal? Well, there's a couple different categories. There's spiritual leaders, Osborne talks about. There's fellow Christians, and then there's non-Christians. Okay? So, for spiritual leaders, he says, when it comes to spiritual leaders, either self-proclaimed or widely acclaimed, the purpose of our judging is to evaluate and protect Guys, there are wolves in sheep's clothing amongst us. There are. And some preach damnable heresies and doctrines that will send people to hell if they believe that. Now, that is not popular to say at all. Some of them are on television Some of them write books. Some of them have podcasts with thousands and thousands of followers. Some of them have books that are in your co-worker's cubicle next to you. So what do you do about that? You warn. If a real-life wolf ran into this room right now, what would you do? Call Billy. Call Billy. <laughs> You'd hide behind Roger. Man, they're throwing you under the bus, bud. What would you do? Yeah, you had a stool in your eye. You can't see it, right? What would you do? A, a real-life wolf runs into this room. Would you deal with it? Or would you just ignore it? That's not going to be a problem. It'll be okay. Absolutely. Don't worry about that. Caleb, Anna Grace, just pet that wolf. He won't hurt you. Feed him. He's all right. Mama's got some candy in her purse. I bet he likes candy. Just get real close. Snuggle up. No. We would be doing, I would be, as a father, I have my wife and my two kids in the room tonight. I would be doing everything possible to make sure that they are safe and that thing dies quickly. Jesus didn't pick that analogy on accident, guys. He picked a wolf. A wolf hates sheep that are living. A wolf loves dead sheep because they can feast on them. There are wolves in sheep's clothing. Call them out. Well, we didn't get too many amens on that one, did we? Call them out. It'll be okay. Imagine this one day. You stand before God, and he says, you had an opportunity to defend the truth. What did you do? Did you fear man, or did you fear me? I want to fear God. I want to tell the truth. I want to say it in love, but I want to be really clear. So, that's the first. The second is, what about Christians? I think we've already answered this blank, but just in case you missed this blank... Our goal, or one goal of our judgment should always be restoration. If we're going to do life together forever, I want to do it with the right relationship. And then, 
What's the next thing on the PowerPoint? Now on the PowerPoint. You sure that's it? That's it? There's nothing else? Huh. You think nothing goes here, maybe? Interesting. What goes in that blank? What's the rule for judging non-Christians? It's, it stays blank, guys. <laughs> nothing goes here. That's not for us. That's out of my space. That doesn't work. So this is how Osborne ends that chapter. He says, finally, we must judge with grace. When our judgments lead us into personal attacks, bitterness, or raging anger, something has gone terribly wrong. When it comes to judging them or anyone, God wants us to judge in the same way. We both judge and love ourselves, boldly calling sin, sin, while responding with an abundance of grace and mercy. It's a myth that Christians shouldn't judge. We can and we should. We just need to make sure we're judging the right things in the right way. A proper understanding of when and how to judge is an important step towards spiritual maturity. Here's what happens. We take folks to um, the salvation process. They get baptized. They go through our growth track. We teach them how to study the Bible. And we don't show them what it actually looks like in real life. Because the New Testament calls Christianity spiritual warfare. This is a battle. And in a battle, there's confrontations. Did you notice the background that we used for... Uh, winning everyday battles, the sermon series that we concluded this morning. Who remembers what the background was? It was a cannon. What would you need a cannon for if we're all going to sing, hold hands and sing Kumbaya? Because that ain't what it's about. It's a fight. That's the reality. He says, without proper understanding of judging, we can either end up at one of two dangerous extremes, winking at, winking at sin in the mistaken belief that we have no right to judge the beliefs and actions of others, or unintentionally condemning ourselves with our harsh denunciations of the very things we struggle with or the things that God could care less about. So, that's dumb idea number four and number five. Next week, Lord willing, in here, we'll be looking at everything happens for a reason. This is one that some of you are going, but I believe that. I know you do. It's okay. I'll go slowly. <laughs> no, it's okay. This is the one that I didn't believe when I picked up the book for the first time. I was like, ah, I don't know about that. I think he's off his rocker here. Maybe I can just name this nine dumb things that smart Christians believe. And then it was pretty obvious. Uh, and then let your conscience be your guide. So if anybody's got a good Jiminy Cricket voice, I may need that next week. So you might want to work on that as part of your homework. But also at the bottom of the backside of your handout, you notice there are several verses there. Those are the verses about judging. Um, I'm going to leave you with one thought, and then we'll close in prayer. When you do a, a study on a particular topic or a word in Scripture, we have a tendency to do a study on the English word, right? And the only challenge that I would give you with that is that the Bible wasn't written originally in English. It was written in Hebrew and Greek and a little Aramaic sprinkled in in the Old Testament. And what we want to do is find out what the original language word was and figure out where that was used. That gives us a very full picture of what this concept is taught about in the New Testament. So those verses, when you read them for the will verses, and you don't see the word will, but you see the word desires in the verse, it's the same Greek word. It's just a different English translation. So I don't want you to get thrown and go, 
I didn't see that word in the verse, Jim. You just, your search program is broken. Mm, I'm doing it a different way. So it's kind of a back end into the data. So that's numbers one, two, three, four, and five. We're halfway through with week three. That'll mess with your head if you're bad at fractions. Um, and next week we're going to be doing everything happens for a reason and let your conscience be your guide.